We'll hear argument in number 947427, Libretti against the United States. Ms. Beale. Justice Stevens, and may it please the Court. This case raises two important questions about the procedural rights afforded to defendants who tender guilty pleas, including criminal forfeiture. The two questions are, first, whether Rule 11F of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure requires the District Court to find a factual basis for the defendant's guilty plea to the criminal forfeiture. And second, whether a defendant who waives — excuse me, a defendant who pleads guilty waives his right to a jury verdict on forfeiture if he was not advised of that right and never expressly waived it. Very briefly, the facts are as follows. In exchange for the prosecutor's agreement to recommend a 20-year sentence on one count and to drop the remaining counts, Petitioner pled guilty to violating 21 U.S.C. Section 848, and he signed an agreement containing three paragraphs regarding criminal forfeiture. As construed by the Court of Appeals, paragraph 10 of that agreement forfeited all of Petitioner's property, including legitimately acquired property. The District Court accepted Petitioner's plea without making a finding that there was a factual basis for this forfeiture. Excuse me. The the Court of Appeals said it included legitimately acquired property? The Court of Appeals said that it included all of Petitioner's property of every kind. Right. But it didn't say that it included legitimately acquired property. It simply amounted to, uh, in the Court of Appeals' view, an acknowledgement that none of his property was legitimately acquired. Oh, I think that's not correct, Your Honor. I think everyone in the case concedes that the property, some of the property involved was acquired legitimately. There are findings to that effect in the district court. For example, well, some of the — Not, not by, by what you mean, not, for, not properly forfeitable? Uh, no, I think that, that there's a distinction to be drawn here. In the first instance, how was the property acquired? And that there was some which was legitimately acquired as opposed to property, let's say, that would be the proceeds of a criminal offense. Uh, I see. Right. And, and so it, you mean legitimately acquired with, with the proceeds? I mean legitimately inqui- acquired, for example, before it's alleged that the uh, conduct in question occurred. So he had property uh, that was acquired by him as a child, which was in- involved in the forfeiture here, for example. And I think everyone concedes that that property was legitimately acquired. The two bank accounts for example, from uh, the Chicago area, which were uh, opened when he, first when he was in grade school and never had any deposits after uh, at least 1981 in the case of both accounts. Uh, also, his salary from General Chemical in G- Green River, and Wyoming. The, and the Court of Appeals conceded this, said, said this? It's accepted by all parties. I'm not sure if there's a sentence in the Court of Appeals' opinion. But, that, but that's but what it, you said. You said the Court of Appeals said that, that he agreed to a for, that, that by reason of his agreement, he forfeit, he forfeited properly, legitimately acquired properties, what you said. That's correct. And where, I, I where does it say that? Wouldn't it be more, more accurate to say that they, they said he forfeited everything he owned on the assumption that some of it might have been legitimately acquired? Even if some of it was legitimately acquired, under their reading, he would have forfeited it. That's correct. And, and I mean, that would, that would be another proper reading. Well, I think is, there read, is there an indication that their reading was that the legitimately acquired property was also non-forfeitable? Well, th- I, I believe that gets to the nub you of make the that point. Claim. It's not a question. Has, has anyone made that express assumption? Did, did, did the, I take it the Court of Appeals did not state that assumption. I, I think the, I think the, the point is that property, property no, but what's, my, what's the, the answer to my question? The Court of Appeals didn't state that assumption, did it? I don't think you'll find that sentence as such. Perhaps okay. And the district, the district Court was, in fact, holding hearings that would have been relevant to that determination, but they were the hearings without jurisdiction, so we can't depend on uh, that. That is correct. Uh, I believe the Court of Appeals' opinion is quite clear that their point is that petitioner uh, entered into an agreement that would forfeit all property without any determination whether it was or was not, for example, proceeds, and period. And I think everyone concedes that some of the property here was not acquired as proceeds. I believe the government's position is it could become forfeitable, not that it was not legitimately acquired, but it could become forfeitable, let's say, as a substitute asset. Mm -hmm. 
Right. So, so uh, pro- there was no finding, for example, that that property in the in the district court level or at the court of appeals level that it was forfeitable because it was proceed because it was not legitimately acquired. And and so uh, the point merely is that it would take some factual set of factual assumptions to show that legitimately acquired property is in fact subject to forfeiture. It could become subject to forfeiture, depending upon the facts that were shown. And the district court never made those factual findings in the first instance. So if I can uh, clarify that. Uh, the district court also accepted a petitioner's plea without uh, advising him that he had a right to a special jury verdict on the question of what property, if any, was subject to forfeiture, although he had a right and would have been possible for him to plead guilty and nonetheless contest on the Section 848 charge, and nonetheless contest forfeiture before the jury. Uh, he was not advised of that right, and he never Steele, expressly waived po- it. Suppose the district judge had told Libretti how it would play out if he stood trial, exactly what would have to be proved. So he knew all that when he entered his plea. Would that have been enough to satisfy the legal requirements if the judge had told him, just as he tells him with respect to the substantive offense, now, if you stand trial, there will be a jury trial on these assets, and there will be this special verdict, told him exactly what would happen if he stood trial. And he says, Your Honor, I want this plea. And then at the end, he says what he did here. Uh, I want proof made with respect to these assets. Well, there are really two requirements that we're talking about, and it's important for me to distinguish those. One of the issues before the court is the question of the waiver standard that's applicable to the jury trial right. And on that point, for example, if the judge had uh, clearly indicated to Mr. Libretti not simply that the jury won't find you guilty or innocent, which is what he told Mr. Libretti, uh, but had said the jury won't find you guilty or innocent, and you have a right to have that determination, and the jury won't make any determination of what assets are forfeitable, and you have a right to that determination as well. Uh, now, do you want to plead guilty? That would have taken care of the waiver of the jury trial right. There's an independent requirement, however, under Rule 11F for a factual basis. And I think that's clearer if you imagine a case, laying forfeiture to one side, if you imagine a case, it's a bank robbery case. Uh, in In that instance, there would be both a requirement that the defendant waive his right to a jury trial and also a requirement that a factual basis be shown for his plea uh, to the uh, bank robbery offense. So your it's answer, two My question is, your answer is, no, it would not have been enough to tell him exactly how this would play out if he stood trial. He would still have a right to insist on some kind of a showing with respect to each piece of property? Well, that's correct. And the reason for that uh, is that it's exactly parallel to the requirements for a plea of guilty on the offenses that are uh, charged. The purpose of the factual basis requirement really is to ensure that, that there's a match between the evidence in the case on the one hand and the legal requirements of the charge on the other hand. And if there are five or six counts in the indictment, well, well, there's the- got to be... So suppose that not all of the property had yet been identified. Uh, We know that the substantial forfeiture is going to occur, but we don't know quite where the bank accounts are, what the amount is, where the location of the real property is. Then then how would you proceed? Could you not take the plea agreement? Well, I I think, Your Honor, that Uh, the the situation is — I think the situation is just parallel to that, where um, that the government doesn't have its proof in order yet uh, on some of the — it would have its proof in order on some counts, for example, in the indictment, and not others. If it couldn't make at least a factual basis showing on those other counts, then it wouldn't be able to resolve that part of the case. That's, that's correct. Now, the standard is not — Well, under your view, it couldn't, couldn't, the court couldn't even take the plea. 
that that's correct to the extent that it's a dependent part of that plea. Now, there might be other charges that could be entirely resolved. In our view, the, the uh, requirements of federal law do make the forfeiture charge a substantive charge, as the Court is aware. Federal rules require it to be charged in the indictment, proved to the jury with a special jury verdict, and embodied in the judgment. Those are, are very substantial requirements that effectively make forfeiture forfeiture, a, a unique hybrid. It is a substantive charge in the indictment, and the plea, by definition, has to resolve the charges in the indictment. You plead to those charges in the indictment, and federal law makes that a substantive charge. Now, it's not an element of the offense of a violation, let's say, of Section 848, the crime that the defendant was accused of here. But it does, under federal law, have this unique character of a substantive charge in the indictment, which must be responded to. There are only two ways Field, to I resolve such a question charge. About the, about the relief that's prompted by Justice Kennedy's question and your answer, that if there are two counts, there was no factual basis for one, the guilty plea might stand as to one count again. Is it your view if there's no factual basis for the forfeiture, but there is an adequate factual basis for the guilt of the offense charge, that the guilty plea would remain in effect and the judgment of guilt could stand even though the forfeiture is improper? Well, in this case, Your Honor, as opposed to in general, well, would it at ever first be in general and then in this case. In general, I believe that it might be possible to resolve uh, – to resolve the underlying, the question of the underlying guilt and take the plea to that and leave unresolved for the moment the forfeiture charge and the, uh, uh, whether that would be ultimately resolved by a jury determination of that or whether that might also be resolved by a plea uh, on the uh, forfeiture well, with a factual basis and with the necessary waiver. Could the court then enter a judgment of conviction on the guilty plea of the charge and reserve for further hearings? What that's, to do that's correct. In the same way, uh, typically, now that was, was not done in this case, but typically the way these indictments are drawn up is to include the forfeiture charge in a separate count. Right? And you would literally plead to count two and not three, four, five, and so forth. And I think that would be uh, certainly possible that the parties would agree to resolve it that way and the court would be willing to accept the guilty plea under those circumstances. Right. And going now, to, to this case, what, what exactly. would be done in this case if we should agree with you? Well, exactly. Now, in this case, it, it appears that the parties had a kind of inter, interwoven or interrelated uh, agreement. As I said, in, in return for the prosecutor's agreement, uh, to recommend the 20-year sentence and not to proceed with the other counts. Uh, then petitioner agreed to plead guilty. And I think that, that where, where the resolution of the, of the counts is interrelated as a matter of the plea bargain and the party's understanding, then, then the court may indeed need to, to uh, accept or reject, uh, resolve all at one time. Uh, otherwise, the parties may not, in fact, be tendering that agree, uh, agreement to the court. Now, well, one other question, then I'll, 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 I'll be covered everything I had in the back of my mind. What if the agreement were totally ambiguous? And I, I, I think I read the Court of Appeals opinion the way you do, too, saying that even if some of the property might not be forfeitable, uh, nevertheless, we construe the agreement as an uh, undertaking to forfeit everything. Uh, for, uh, uh, assume it's clear that that's what the agreement was in exchange for a somewhat lesser sentence. Would that agreement be enforceable? In your view? It depends. It depends. So that um, if the factual basis showing was that, in fact, let's say, um, substitute assets uh, would reach even legitimate. No, no, so, so, so some of the property that he agreed to forfeit, the government would have no valid claim to. Uh, we think it's clear that the court cannot uh, accept a plea on that basis and enter a sentence any more than it could accept a petitioner's agreement to serve a 30-year sentence if the statutory maximum were uh, 20 years, even if he was willing to agree to that, uh, even if he might, for example, be willing to agree to that to avoid the prosecution of his wife or his child. Or, or to preserve a uniquely valuable asset. There are policy-based outer limitations 
on the court's sentencing authority. And those clearly have to be observed or the sentence itself is uh, illegal. Does, and does, we the think case, does the case depend, does your argument depend on whether we characterize this as sentencing enhancement or an element of the offense? I mean, well, is, the, is, is that a pivotal point in the analysis? I think, I think the characterization of the, the criminal forfeiture itself is exactly the pivotal point. Um, what what I would it's, not... If it's enhancement of the offense, then what's, what happens to your case? If it's an enhancement of punishment? We, we concede that forfeiture operates as a penalty. So in that sense, it, sentencing enhancement would be one way of describing that penalty, that there's a period of imprisonment plus this enhanced penalty of forfeiture. What we don't accept is the notion that there are only two possibilities. There are the elements of the offense on the one hand and mere matters of sentencing on the other hand. We think what Congress did was in, in reviving criminal forfeiture and then the rules uh, promulgated first by the advisory committee, then adopted by this court and Congress, what they did was create something quite properly that is a unique hybrid, that is not, strictly speaking, the element of any particular offense, but is plainly not treated like any other matter of uh, sentencing. So it, it operates as a penalty, but it has uh, far different uh, procedural characteristics associated with it that reflect a different, uh, a, a, a quite different weighting of the interests that are involved there. No, you I'm sorry. That's all right. It, maybe I misunderstood you before. If that is so, why does it matter? Why is it crucial to characterize it? Well, I think that the characterization is just a shorthand way of summing up those attributes. So I'm not so sure that it matters well, what... Well, but it's a shorthand way and effect of, of obfuscating this hybrid character. Well, let, uh, let, me, let me make this suggestion to you. Let's assume for the sake of argument that there is, in fact, a Sixth Amendment right to the determination with respect to the forfeiture. I don't know whether there is or not, but, I mean, there's an argument for it. And let's assume also, for the sake of argument, that the Boykin requirements are, in fact, constitutionally mandated and not merely our choices of the best way to get from here to there. If you make those two assumptions, then I suppose you would argue uh, that the statement of factual basis was constitutionally mandated, wouldn't you? We could certainly argue that. I think that we. And you'd argue that, and you would say, well, that argument is sound or not, regardless of whether you characterize this as element or whether you characterize this as penalty enhancement. Well, I think that's right. I think that we felt somewhat. Why don't you make some such argument here? Why don't you say, for example? In order to avoid having to grapple with these constitutional issues about the Sixth Amendment requirement of, of jury verdict on forfeiture and, and the, the, the exactly mandatory character of Boykin, uh, the way to avoid those issues is to read Rule 11F to require this statement of factual basis. Uh, and why don't you make that argument, which would not require a characterization one way or the other. We, we could leave the, that issue in, in limbo. Uh, we mean to be making that argument, Your Honor, and if we haven't made it clearly, let me uh, endorse that. But if now. you're making uh, that argument, you don't have to make the characterization uh, uh, on an either-or basis, do you? I was using the characterization only as a way to draw attention to those features, so that's right. Uh. We, we, don't, we don't require a heading. Um, we, only, make, we only need to draw attention to those crucial character, characteristics. If and you make those arguments, then you're saying what not only what I put to you initially wouldn't be good enough to tell the defendant exactly how it would play out if he didn't enter the plea. But you were also saying that what this district judge tried to do at the end was also not enough. That is, the district judge, instead of saying, government, come forth and show us something as to each piece of property to link it with the forfeiture right. Instead, this district judge said, Defendant, I'm giving you an opportunity to tell me which pieces of property in this collection are not subject to forfeiture. Your answer would have to be, that is not enough either. 
Well, the, the link-up, the factual basis can come from either the defendant or the government. Um, oftentimes, a, a district court will uh, inquire of the defendant, uh, do you admit the various facts that would then add up to be the elements of the offense? But if or the, the government has to make a showing, then how can it be enough for the district judge to say, here's this big pot of everything you have. You show me which of these items should be taken out. It's quite different than putting a burden on the government to show that each and every asset is in some way connected with the criminal activity. Right. That's correct. Rule 11F itself doesn't doesn't, uh, identify the, the government as the party who has the burden of identifying the factual basis. What it says to the judge is there, you must be satisfied that there is a factual basis. And I think that reflects the constitutional imperative of the uh, inquiry to determine that the plea is, in fact, knowing, intelligent, and but voluntary, that there's a match-up. So it, so it can come from either side, either the defense side or the government. If we have a sufficient factual basis, then that portion of the case is taken care of. Now, where we got into difficulties in front of the district court, I think, was that the judge indicated he was not satisfied with what the government had come forward with on the one hand, uh, that, that uh, even though they argued substitute assets, he said, I don't think you've proven that yet. You I may don't think the government that. came forward with anything. The government's position was, we have a plea, and it's good. Now, I, I'm just trying to see how this fits in with the elements of the offense itself. The government has to make some kind of showing. It's the government's burden. Here, this district judge put the burden quite plainly on the defendant and said, you show me which of those pieces of property should be taken out. There, there are two points in time. Initially, when the government simply assumed that the plea itself was enough, um, that was when the plea was entered. And the second point in time where the district judge said to the defendant, you show me, uh, I'm ready to hear your evidence, show me uh, what pieces of property you think are not forfeitable, that was at, at three months later in the ancillary third-party hearing after the notice of appeal had been filed and uh, the judge realized the scope of the forfeiture yes, order. I'm asking you what the Rule 11 requires. And Rule 11 does not put the burden specifically on the government. It simply says the court must find a factual basis. Now, note that that's in the context where the defendant and the government come forward together and where the defendant himself is tendering a guilty plea. So it's really quite different from the context well, why don't of... why you tell me what you think are the marching orders for the district judge? The district judge needs to, uh, f- without regard to which party it comes from, he needs to identify a, a proffer of facts that would link up specific pieces of property or categories of property with a factual reason why those pieces of property are forfeited under federal law. Bill, you get that from Rule 11F. I mean, if you're making a constitutional argument, I suppose we can we can we can discuss Boykin. But how do you how do you find that in Rule 11F, which which speaks of notwithstanding the acceptance of a plea of guilty, that's, a guilty plea. That's right. correct. And not, we believe that Not an agreement to forfeiture, but a plea of guilty of the offense, presumably. The Absolutely. court should not enter a judgment upon such plea, that is, the plea of guilty, without making such inquiry as shall satisfy that there is a factual basis for the plea. That's correct. And the plea of guilty. That's right. And, and the we court believe did that here, didn't it? That's correct. And we believe that the plea of guilty, that there are two pleas of guilty, in, in essence. If you charge it in, as they ordinarily do, in a separate count of the indictment to resolve the charge of forfeiture. You're guilty of forfeiture? That's right. You plead, you plead innocent guilty or guilty. of forfeiture. You're punished with forfeiture for being guilty of the crime. Well, with, with all respect, Your Honor, that's not the way the rules uh, are set up. The rules are set up that this is something that the government must literally charge in the indictment, charge against the defendant in the indictment, and either prove to the jury as a charge. In it, the, uh, the Senate report, I think, describes this in a way that we have found helpful. It's an impersonation of imposing that penalty. The government must do that. But that does not make that plea of guilty. I mean, it's clear what a plea of guilty means. It means I did the crime, not I'm subject to forfeiture. Well, with all respect, Your Honor, we believe that that's not the logical consequence of the combined change wrought by the statutory 
revival of forfeiture and the implementation of the forfeiture requirement in the federal rules, uh, treating it as a charge and indeed incorporating it. Notice there has to be a judgment. It, it, it is not merely a matter of sentencing. You have to resolve that charge either by proof to the jury or alternatively by a plea. There's no other way to resolve such a charge. And although the language takes some getting used to, I think there's some initial reluctance to see that as what we would describe as a guilty plea, we believe that's the logical consequence of the way the rules are set out. Why, why do you want to rely on 6F? I mean, it seems to me you have your finger on a problem that bothered us at the Sentencing Commission for several years, which we couldn't resolve. And why you want to rely on F, I don't know, because the language doesn't fit it nor does the fact that forfeiture appears in the U.S. Code under the term sentencing, nor to about five other things, including that I never heard this one made. But that doesn't destroy your point. What I want to know is, is what I think you're actually trying to argue, and you don't have to jump to the Constitution. You're trying to argue that the sentencing statutes require, before a judge accepts a sentence, and that would apply to forfeiture and five other things, but you don't argue it. Before he does that, that he established that there is some basis for the statutory requirements or guideline requirements for that sentence existing. That that's what you want to say. And I can tell you exactly why the Sentencing Commission danced around it, which I'm putting. First of all, if you say that's part of the Constitution, if it is, the sentencing practices of 50 states are really in trouble, including mil and moreover, if you say it's part of the code, what normally happens in many sentences will no longer exist in the entire federal system. All right, so I want to know what to do here. That is, the argument isn't made squarely. It's made in a context where the language and five other things are against it. But the argument's a serious one. And as you well know, in the guidelines, Chapter 6, the Commission dances around it by saying that the judge may, after deciding that the facts are not such, decide to impose the true sentence, irrespective of what the parties agree. But it doesn't say must. And now, now that, that's what I would like you to address, because I quite honestly don't know exactly what to do about this. Well, we were not in a position to, uh, given the grant of cert, to argue. No, I'm, I'm not interested particularly in your reasons. I'm interested in what you think we should do. I believe the Court should hold that a factual basis is required under 11F. That's the, the, the easiest way, I think, to resolve this. And it if not, if I don't think the language or anything else uh, really fits, then what? We just say we'll decide this another time or what? Well, um, I think that one could conclude that in parallel with the general requirements of sentencing, uh, and in parallel with the requirement of 11F as to the substantive uh, offense, that the uh, appropriate disposition of a uh, plea would require the showing of a factual basis. What do you Whether rely on besides the text of 11F? I mean, what, what other sentencing statute leads you to that, to that conclusion? Well, I, 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 believe, I believe Justice Breyer is correct in saying that the, uh, set, the whole scheme of the sentencing guidelines, the statutes that underlie that, uh, require a, a factual basis for the determination. But not of, under 11F. And no. if you do, can, can I, if, if you, the only difference I can see is if you choose 11F and you win this case, there has to be a new trial. I don't see how you avoid the fact that the guilty plea is void and your client goes right to trial. Well, if, however, these other, these other uh, statutes are what requires it, then the remedy is a new sentence. Well, I, I believe, Your Honor, that the, the remedy sought, that it's not so clear as you imagine that in this case the, the uh, result will be that there's a trial. I believe that the proper remedy is to remand to the district court and to go back to status quo ante. And, in fact, there may be a showing of a factual basis. It may depend a bit on the breadth of the government's claim of forfeiture. In fact, the indictment is, some, is, is, an, is narrower, the charge in the indictment is narrower than the uh, — Courts, uh, the, as construed, uh, paragraph 10 of the agreement. If the uh, court finds well, that there's a I think you've given basis. an answer that differs from one you gave me earlier. I asked you what the right result was, and you said you could pro tanto sustain the plea to the crime, to the offense, but set aside only that portion which would support the forfeiture judgment. Now you're saying you go back to the status quo ante, which would mean withdrawal of the plea, entire well, plea. We, we did discuss both the in general and the in this case. And right. in this case, 
If we find a factual basis on remand, then presumably there, there is well, suppose no Suppose we find a factual basis for the offense but no factual basis for the forfeiture. Then what do you do? Then in this case, I do believe it's inter- interwoven. And at that point, the parties have ch- some choice. The government may restrict the forfeiture that it requests in order that the entire agreement may stand on a proper footing. If, for example, the government determines that it has sought to forfeit uh, property that it didn't perhaps even realize right. was not subject to forfeiture, it may restrict the nature of its but claim. That re- I'm still trying to find out. Do you go back to status quo, Andy, and set aside the guilty plea, or do you merely modify the judgment insofar as it affects forfeiture? Which do you think is correct? Well, when I said status quo ante, I meant Forget to what very you said before. Tell me what you think now. I believe you go back in the first instance, in the first instance, to the very moment of the, the Rule 11 colloquy itself. And so you determine whether there is a factual basis Still for the plea. Which, which, which is the right, which are you saying they must do? Set aside the entire plea or just the parts that relates to forfeiture? If they find no rule 11, no, no factual basis, then petitioner is perfectly prepared to accept the I'm possibility the plea falls apart. I'm not sure that that's the agreement that the government well, I, and I'm petitioner trying to find out from you to. what you think the district court must do. If he finds that there is a factual basis for the plea of guilty of the offense, but not for any forfeiture, what must he do? He should ordinarily reject the plea if there's no factual basis. He should set aside the entire plea. In this case where it's a single interrelated plea, that's correct. Now, it's possible, again, that the parties would resubmit a more narrowly tailored agreement that would reflect then a factual basis. Thank you. Mr. Stewart. Justice Stevens, and may it please the Court. As to the applicability of Rule 11F, I think the questions asked by Justice Scalia and Justice Breyer really pinpoint the weakness of petitioner's argument. That is, Rule 11, by its terms, applies only to pleas of guilty, and it requires the District Court to find only that there is a factual basis for the plea. As this Court recognized in McCarthy v. United States, a plea of guilty is an admission that the defendant committed the acts charged and a willingness to forego trial on those charges. A concession that a particular... Yes, can I ask you a preliminary question to kind of narrow the issue? Supposing the reason for it is so that the court should not enter judgment upon the plea unless there's a factual basis. Supposing the maximum sentence authorized by statute is 10 years and there's a plea agreement that will accept 12 years. Could he enter a 12-year judgment? No. I mean, that, that would not be as a result of Rule 11F, but we agree. At least he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. And secondly, supposing uh, there is clear that there is no factual basis for a forfeiture, but there's an agreement by the defendant, I'll, I'll forfeit $10 million because I'm going to get a five-year five sentence, but there's no, no statutory legal basis for a forfeiture. Could that agreement be enforced? No. If, if the defendant was pleading guilty to a crime for which forfeiture was not an available no, penalty. forfeiture is an available penalty, but the facts would not support forfeiture, and everybody agrees to that. If, if everybody agrees to that, then the, the sentence would be an illegal one. What, the way we would and, interpret And what if, it, what if that is shown after the judgment is entered? Then what happens? Well, typically, the responsibility of the judge would be to determine in, in one way or the other that he was satisfied that the sentence was a lawful one under the applicable statute. And we're not is it, is it sufficient satisfaction to say that I've got agreement in front of me in which the defendant says I agree to forfeit X dollars? If the defendant has conceded that the property is forfeitable, and if there is no record evidence that casts doubt upon that proposition, and if that agreement Does is... Does he have to concede particular uh, assets are forfeitable just that a certain amount of money is forfeitable? No, I think the def- and in this case, the defendant, in essence, conceded that all his assets met the statutory requirements for forfeiture. Now, if we- one doesn't read the agreement that way, one merely reads it as an agreement to forfeit everything I own, which one could read it. Would the, would the judge be permitted to enter this judgment? I think the, the judge would have to, again, to satisfy himself that it was a lawful sentence. And if the judge... He'd have to satisfy himself with a factual basis for it? Well, he would have to satisfy himself that there were facts supporting it. But one of, one of the bits of evidence he could look to, and I think one of the primary pieces of evidence, would be the party's agreement sure. that it was so. And I think one highly relevant portion of the 
the colloquy at the sentencing hearing. In other words, he has to find in the agreement a factual basis for concluding that the assets are forfeitable. He, he has to find — he has to be satisfied that the property is forfeitable under the statute. And tip, typically, one of the ways that judges resolve potential factual disputes is by agreement or stipulation of the party. Right. So you're saying he does not have to satisfy himself personally of the factual basis. It is enough if he receives from the defendant a concession that a factual basis exists. That is correct. But if no concession that a factual basis exists is there, then he may have to conduct some other inquiry. That's correct. But I think you're going beyond that. I thought you said that there would — well, maybe you didn't say there would be a sufficient basis. You said it would be a relevant factual basis that this agreement had been made. If that argument was sound, then it would be a relevant factual basis that an agreement to plead guilty had been made. And yet that's not sufficient under the rule. I think that's correct. And I think in McCarthy versus United States — It's correct that that's what you said, or uh, it's correct that that would not be enough? Both. And, and okay. let me, well, it wouldn't be enough under the rule, but I thought you're saying the rule doesn't apply here. Th that's correct. Let, let, me, let me explain. But you were suggesting that there was an independent obligation on the part of the judge. I'm suggesting in the context of guilty pleas under Rule 11F that, in essence, the plea of guilty cannot form its own factual basis. All right. Now, what about, what about the, uh, the, the, the claim of a right to forfeiture? Can a stipulation that he will, that he agrees to forfeit, be a sufficient factual basis? Yes. I believe the stipulation would ordinarily be construed as — Now, why the difference? Why is it enough on forfeiture? But it's not enough on guilt or innocence. Is I, it the fact that the rule applies on guilt or innocence and the rule doesn't apply on forfeiture? Th that is correct. And I but think you have said — I, I apologize in a way to, for keeping — cutting you off like this. I promise you I'll let you <laughs> run as long as you want to in a second. But I understood you to say that even without the rule, the judge has an obligation to assure himself that there is some — factual basis uh, to, to, to believe that the forfeiture was not a wholly illegal forfeiture. That's correct. And or, or What's the source of that obligation? Be, the courts have, have recognized through the years that the judge has an independent obligation to impose a sentence that is authorized by law. And indeed, the plea agreement in this case contained a term stating that the judge was not bound by the party's agreement, but would impose the sentence that, that he deemed. Does that, does that get you to the equivalent of Rule 11, then? I, I don't believe so. And, and let me explain by reference to McCarthy versus United States. In McCarthy versus United States, the government made, with respect to guilty pleas, something very similar to the argument that I'm making with regard to sentencing stipulations. That is, the government argued the mere fact that McCarthy entered a plea of guilty is a sufficient reason for us to conclude that he must have committed the crime. And the court said, that's not good enough. And it pointed to rule, what at that time was Rule 11. It hadn't been recodified as Rule 11F and said the rule specifically requires in the context of guilty pleas that the judge look beyond the party's plea. And the court stated that the reasons for this requirement are specific to the context of guilty pleas. That is precisely because a plea of guilty to a criminal offense has such severe consequences because a criminal conviction is thought to be such a, a significant step. The court has an obligation with respect to pleas of guilty that is not imposed with respect to concessions or stipulations generally. The court did not say in McCarthy, in the area of criminal law generally, there is an obligation for the court to look beyond the party's agreement to see whether it, they are accurate. The court said guilty pleas are different. Where in this plea agreement did the defendant acknowledge the factual basis for his giving up his title to all his property? The, the plea agreement contained only a term stating that the defendant agrees to transfer title to, to all his assets. I think your case would be a lot stronger if it said the defendant agrees that all of these assets are, are properly forfeitable at law and he agrees to transfer them all to the government. All it says, however, is he agrees to transfer them to the government. Now, how do you find what you say is the necessary factual concession uh, in that? I think the strongest indication that this was the interpretation the parties placed upon the agreement is on page 149 of the Joint Appendix, which is the colloquy at the sentencing hearing. And petitioner's counsel is, uh, petitioner's then counsel is addressing the court, and counsel states, 
the second — first full paragraph, the second paragraph. Your Honor, of course — Oh, what page? Uh, page 149 of the Joint Appendix. Counsel states, Your Honor, of course that's all for naught because as a result of this, meaning the, the crime, the forfeiture is going to take regular money and illegal money under the substitute assets. Maybe all the, those years that he's worked, maybe that which he's loved most dearly next to his family, those dollars, for whatever reason, are going to be taken by from him by the government. Mr. Libretti has a lot of questions about that. It's a harsh law. Both the CCE law and the forfeiture law is a harsh law. It's a bitter pill dealt by Congress, but it's a pill we must swallow. And I think implicit in this discussion is, first, counsel's recognition that all of the property was to be forfeited pursuant to the agreement and that there was to be no further hearing to determine which property would be forfeited and which would not. But I think second and equally that significant — paragraph doesn't say all his property is covered by it. He says — It may be some regular money and some illegal money. He says regular money and illegal money under the substitute assets. The substitute — doesn't, doesn't say that the substitute assets would eat up his entire estate. Well, he says — both the CCE law and the forfeiture law is a harsh law. Well, it's a bitter it pill dealt by Congress. It's still not the same as saying he gets 100 percent of his estate, even if the forfeitable assets plus the substitute assets don't equal the total. Well, it doesn't say that. At, at the hearing itself, the, the government made a motion for forfeiture that listed all the assets that were subsequently encompassed in the district court's order of forfeiture. And defense counsel made no objection to that motion. And this is the portion of the colloquy that most directly addresses the issue of forfeiture. And it, it seems to us to be an acknowledgment not simply that all of the property would be forfeited pursuant to the agreement. all of it was forfeitable. Exactly. But I don't think the Court of Appeals read it that way. If you look at page 325 of the Joint Appendix, they seem to say in exchange for forfeiting all of his property. That seems to include forfeitable as well as non-forfeitable. I made this deal. If you look at page 324 of uh, the Court of Appeals, at the, the very bottom of the page, the fifth line from the bottom, the, the Court of Appeals states, he intended to forfeit all, his, all of his property without requiring the government to prove the assets were forfeitable. The plea agreement requires forfeiture pursuant to Section 853, which includes forfeitable assets under 853A and substitute assets under Section 853P. We, we would certainly agree that if the plea agreement had been drafted more artfully, some of these questions would have disappeared. We think, on the whole, the courts below and petitioners, then trial counsel, place the construction of, on the agreement that, that we place here. In any event, it's, it's certainly irrelevant to the 11F question. That is, the concession either is not, either is or is not a plea of guilty. Well, is it irrelevant? What if the agreement made it perfectly clear that half of his assets were forfeitable properly, but the agreement nevertheless provided for forfeiture of all of his assets? So there was a clear factual basis for saying everything covered by the agreement is not authorized to be forfeited. What would happen then? Well, if, if the agreement were clear on its face that the other half of the assets were not forfeitable under the statute, but the parties were nevertheless agreeing to forfeit them, right. I, th I think the district court's obligation would be to reject that aspect of the agreement, as just, just, just as if the government and the defendant had agreed that the defendant would consent to a prison sentence in excess of that authorized and what law. if the plea agreement says nothing at all yeah, about whether it, it is properly for, forfeitable or improperly? It just says he agrees to forfeit all his assets. I think probably the, the obligation of — probably the, the better practice on the part of the district court would be to inquire as to — I don't talk about — What about his obligation? About what he has to do. Wouldn't he do exactly what the judge is trying to do in this case? I, no, no, I think what, the, what went on at the, plea, at the sentencing colloquy was what ought to have happened. That is, no, never mind that. Answer my question, would you? What does the judge have to do when he gets a plea agreement that says nothing more than he agrees to forfeit all his assets, period? And there's no colloquy with counsel, uh, which uh, you, you contend suggests that, that, that there's an acknowledgment that they are all forfeitable. There's no acknowledgment at all that they are forfeitable. Just he agrees to forfeit all of them. Is that an adequate plea agreement? I think that the, precisely because the parties cannot stipulate to an illegal sentence, the judge should con, could construe that as a concession that all of the property was forfeitable. But in, could. So yes. he would not have to make any further inquiry? He would not. Uh, again, if, if the plea well, — Well, suppose, suppose, suppose uh, you, you, that's not a reasonable way to construe the agreement, uh, but that after the plea, 
is accepted. He then holds a complete forfeiture hearing. Uh, Is the plea still invalid? It it seems to me that you're you're conceding more than you should. It seems to me that you're saying that uh, he has to make uh, either a a finding that it's a factual basis or at least construe a concession or an agreement that way for the plea to be valid. No, we're saying to impose the sentence of forfeiture, not, not for the plea to be valid, but to order forfeiture in accordance with the agreement. The judge would have to feel... But the plea stands, and then the question is just the adequacy of the post-plea procedures. That's all we're talking about. That's correct. But Under per- your view of the case. That's correct. But, but pursuant to the agreement, if the parties, if the defendant had stipulated that all the assets were forfeitable, the judge would be perfectly justified in, and that agreement was plausible on its face, this, the, right. the judge would be justified in ordering forfeiture on that basis alone without conducting additional proceedings. And certainly the point from the government's perspective of entering into this agreement was precisely to obviate the need for an elaborate hearing on the question of forfeitability. What is the right form of words, in your opinion, where we are, as I take it, is forget about 11F. That has to do with guilty pleas. But we're now talking about Justice Stevens' question, which is that a judge is never free to impose an illegal sentence. And here we have a forfeiture statute. We also have a statute that governs in very great detail sentences of all sorts and shapes. And one of the major questions is the extent to which parties can stipulate to facts relevant to sentencing which aren't true. All right, so this governs quite a lot. And the issue, I take it, is what's the right form of words for this Court to write as to the duty imposed on a Federal District Judge to determine independently what the facts are in respect to a fact relevant to sentencing to which the parties have agreed. Now, there are two guideline sections written on this, and neither answers that question. So what is the government's view? Because I don't see how to write this case without taking a view on that, though it isn't fully argued. Well, I think the government's view would be that, again, leaving aside for the question, for, for the moment, the question of interpretation of the agreement, if it were clear that the agreement was a concession that certain assets were forfeitable under the statute, I think the ordinary principles governing the district. Right. If they had said right here, as your directive, I guess, of November 1994 now tells everybody to say, the defendant should stipulate as to what the facts are. But if that were clear, there wouldn't be a problem. You could just say, yes, there's enough here. Or alternatively, if there were nothing, I guess it wouldn't be a problem. We could say there's nothing here. But, but what is But we might have to be in that ambiguous area where it would be useful to have a standard as to, as to what there has to be. And that's why I'm asking what, in your opinion, and I think it's quite difficult to answer, but, I, but we may have to answer it. What, in your opinion, is the correct form of words to, to, to describe I'd be repeating myself. You've taken it in, right? The correct form of words for the 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 correct form of words to describe the duty of a sentencing judge in the federal system independently to determine the extent to which a fact relevant to sentencing is true, given that there is a stipulation. Maybe there is no independent duty, but maybe there is some. Maybe you have to look at the pre-sentence report. Was there a pre-sentence report here? There was Maybe a, you have to ask some questions. I, I, I'm asking to get your opinion on that, if there is one that you have. I think, as a general matter, the district court's obli- the district court could enter an order of forfeiture in accordance with the agreement if the agreement was plausible on its face and if it was not squarely contradicted by other record evidence. That is, the and district. And that also would hold for. stipulations as to how much drugs there were, stipulations as to uh, the proper guideline level, stipulations as to uh, the amount of the fine, stipulations as to, you know, I mean, I take it there's no way to differentiate the one from the other. Well, at at least as between the things you mentioned, some are purely factual determinations, some are purely legal determinations, and some are mixed questions of fact and law. The, The court would more often feel justified in saying that a stipulation as to a pure question of law was implausible. But, but that, is, is, is it correct that that issue has to be reached by this Court when we write the case, that the issue is the validity of the plea and whether a jury was waived as to the forfeiture determination? That's all. 
It certainly — I mean, those are the questions as I read them. It certainly it isn't necessary to resolve this question to decide whether Rule 11F imposes upon the district court a, an obligation to find a factual basis for the plea. Can, can you or do you take the position that if the judge takes appropriate action to determine forfeitability after the entry of the plea, that the plea is valid? Oh, that's correct. And in general — All right. And that's the, that's the first question. Now, what about uh, the waiver of the right of a jury to determine, determine forfeitability? Does the entry of a guilty plea waive the right of a jury to determine forfeitability at the sentencing stage? That's, that is somewhat unclear. As a practical matter, this is a situation that virtually never arises. That is, the government hardly ever enters or virtually never enters into plea agreements in which issues of forfeitability remain unresolved because part of the, the point of a plea agreement from our standpoint is to obviate the need for that kind of prolonged evidentiary but proceeding. Mr. Well, Mr. I'm, I'm actually surprised at that. It would seem to me that there are many issues of forfeitability that are, that are somewhat difficult, the tracing of assets and so forth, that are going to take a subsequent hearing after the plea's entered. But, I mean, typically I mean, — you, you, you know the cases better than I do, but I'm surprised at your I, answer. As far as Department of Justice practice goes, typically if we are going to enter in — you're right that often when a case is tried to a jury, there will be elaborate, difficult issues of, of forfeitability remaining. But when the government enters into a plea agreement, typically there is an insistence upon obtaining stipulations or concessions as to forfeiture as well so that we don't essentially have to try the case despite the, the entry of the plea agreement. Now, it's, it's very clear that the defendant could simply plead guilty without an agreement and preserve his right to contest the forfeitability of assets. Mr. Stewart, let me go back to the question I asked Ms. Beale, that this defendant was not told by the district judge going in about this most unusual kind of a jury determination that he would be entitled to if he didn't plead guilty, that is, the special verdict and all that. Doesn't he, to waive that right to the jury determination on the forfeiture, at least have to know about this extraordinary, a special verdict in a criminal case is really extraordinary procedure, isn't it? And not one word was said about that. We agree, but we don't believe that the, the knowing relinquishment standard of Johnson versus Zerbst would apply. That is, by pleading guilty, the defendant obviously gave up a host of rights that he could have asserted at a trial had he insisted but upon it. But under Rule 11, he's told about those rights, or many of them. He's certainly not told about this unusual right. He, he's told about a small set of fundamental constitutional rights. He's not required under Rule 11 to be told about any statutory rights, and we believe that Rule 31E is, is not of constitutional dimension. Moreover, he, he was told at the plea colloquy that he had the right to be tried by a jury. I, I think part, in a sense, petitioner's argument presumes that on the one hand, the right to a jury determination on forfeiture is part and parcel of the Sixth Amendment right to jury trial. But that on the other hand, for purposes of the Rule 11 colloquy, they are two different things. So the advice that you have the right to be tried by a jury doesn't encompass the right that uh, advice that you have the right to be tried to a jury on forfeiture. In general, the Rule 11 colloquy would not involve an elaborate parsing out of the functions that judge and jury would play at trial. So if, even if a defendant received a perfectly adequate Rule 11 colloquy, he might still be uncertain as to whether particular issues would have been resolved by the judge or by I'm the not jury. not asking you anything abstract. <laughs> I'm asking you about this is a peculiar kind of a jury trial right. Does defendant waive that even though he has no notion that it exists because nobody told him about it? Yes, I mean, it, we know that he was not told by the court. We don't know whether he was told by his counsel, but he could waive it regardless of whether he had actual knowledge. And the court has I can, I, I, The notion of an unknowing, unconscious waiver is disturbing. I can see you say, well, he doesn't, he's really not entitled to know about it. I mean, so it the, doesn't matter that he wasn't told. Well, in How can will you waive something that you don't know you have a right to? Well, the court has recognized in a variety of circumstances that, as a general matter, 
a defendant's rights, even constitutional rights, can be waived simply by the failure to assert them at the proper time. So it can often happen during the course of a criminal trial. Well, yes, but here, if we make the assumption for the sake of argument that this particular right, the jury determination with respect to forfeiture, is of constitutional dimension, then it would be very odd uh, to say that the same guilty plea uh, which waives the right to a trial on guilt and innocence should be treated differently from the guilty plea insofar as it waives the jury determination uh, with respect to the forfeiture. I mean, why would you draw that distinction? There's no pragmatic reason to do so. It's not that you would be interfering with the relationship between counsel and client or whatnot. Uh, why, why would you ever draw that distinction if you assume that, in fact, it is of constitutional significance, that the, uh, the, the determination on forfeiture is of constitutional uh, significance? Well, I think in fashioning Rule 11, the drafters didn't state that the defendant had to be advised of all the constitutional rights that — No, but just why — just my question is, why would you want to draw that distinction? Why, what would make that a rational and sensible distinction? Well, my, my answer may, may sound as though it's questioning your premise that this falls within the Sixth Amendment, but the fact is that the procedural protections available at a criminal trial as a prerequisite to a determination of guilt or innocence have always been given a, a higher status than procedural protections available at sentencing. That does sound as though you're rejecting my premise. Uh, and and uh, if you don't reject my premise, what's your answer? Why would you draw that distinction? I guess we would say, first, we would draw that distinction because we think that the drafters of Rule 11 drew that distinction. They referred to the right to be tried by a jury. They placed it in the context of other rights that were clearly going to be asserted at, the, at a trial rather than at a sentencing proceeding. And the second point we would make is, again, if this is part and parcel of the Sixth Amendment right to be tried by a jury, he was told you have the right to be tried by a jury, and he waived it. Well, he was told that, and yet in the colloquy, which, is in, uh, which has been already adverted to, the judge, uh, as part of that colloquy, then went on to say, uh, now, if you plead guilty, that's going to be the end of it, and so on. And he says, the jury is not going to decide whether you're guilty or not. That suggests to me, it would suggest to me, if I, I, if I were the defendant standing there, that my jury trial right goes to guilt or innocence. It would not suggest to me that I had a jury trial right with respect to the forfeiture. And, and even if I assume, for the sake of argument, that, the, that a mere statement or a, a, an unqualified statement saying you waive your right to jury trial of all matters charged against you or whatnot would be sufficient, it seems to me, going back to Justice Ginsburg's question, what happened here, that the judge seems to have modified that later in the colloquy to indicate that the jury trial right just goes to guilt or innocence. Well, well certainly that statement, I think the judge was primarily focusing on the right to jury trial on, on guilt or innocence because that's, that's the thing that's generally so at if, issue. If you were standing there listening, wouldn't you draw the conclusion that you had a jury trial right in, uh, on guilt or in, and innocence and, and likewise conclude that you didn't have a jury trial right on anything else? I think that's probably the most likely inference. And our position has never been. Normally you don't have a jury trial on the sentence. So what I don't understand is that here is a, a hybrid, as Ms. Beale called it. Uh, it has to be charged. You have a right to a jury trial with a special verdict. And to say that a defendant, a judge, doesn't even have the obligation to tell the judge, with the, the defendant, with respect to this forfeiture, in the absence of a plea agreement, there would be a jury trial right, and the jury would have to make special findings on each item of property. I mean, in the, the Rule 11 really encompasses two categories of information that have to be conveyed to the defendant. One is information about what will happen to you if you plead guilty, what's the minimum and maximum sentence, and so forth. And the other category of information is what rights would you be able to insist on if you didn't plead guilty and insisted on, upon a trial. And the idea is to allow the, the defendant in some rough sense to compare the options available to him. I think one thing that's noteworthy about the second category of information, what would happen to you if you insisted upon a right to trial, is that it doesn't include any information about sentencing. 
That is, the defendant is not required to be told this would be your minimum and maximum sentence if you insisted upon a right to trial. Indeed, in Brady versus United States, the Court held that a defendant's guilty plea was voluntary even though he reasonably believed that he would be subject to a sentence of death if he insisted upon trial and was convicted. It, it turned out that that was not the case, that that statutory capital provision was invalid, and therefore the defendant pleaded guilty under the misapprehension that he would be subject to a capital sentence if he contested the charges. So th the rule simply doesn't require the same quantum of information as to what would happen if you contested the charges as it Stewart, can I ask you, your time is about to expire, and two questions about this particular case. Am I correct that the only issue before the Court of Appeals was the order of forfeiture, not the, not the plea of guilt or innocence? That's correct. And secondly, is it your reading of the Court of Appeals' opinion that the post-plea uh, uh, proceedings on forfeiture that the district judge w was conducting cannot be conducted under the holding of the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals said that the district court retained jurisdiction to adjudicate third-party claims to the property, but that the district court did not retain jurisdiction to entertain the, the defendant petition. could not ma make any further claim. That's correct. And the Court of Appeals uh, essentially treated that aspect of the post-judgment proceedings as a nullity. Okay. Thank you. Was there a pre There was a pre-sentence report. And does the pre-sentence report go into any of these facts? The pre-sentence report it contains information regarding the legitimate income that petitioner had earned over the years, which would be relevant in, in determining the plausibility of the government's claim that assets would be forfeitable under the substitute assets provision. The pre-sentence report also notes forfeiture as an available sanction, but does not go into... Well, my point is, is there anything in that that would add to the quantum of information that the sentencing judge had if the obligation is on the sentencing judge to determine whether there is a basis for the forfeiture that he ordered? That, the, to the extent that the pre-sentence report discusses petitioner's legitimate... Does it help or doesn't it help? It, it does help. The, Do it we gives, have it here? We should get it. It gives the... Okay. I, I'm not sure if it's... In the record, the, the pre-sentence report included information both about legitimate earnings and about the extent of petitioner's unlawful conduct, both of which would have been relevant in determining the plausibility of the concession that all the property was forfeitable under the statute. Okay. Thank, Thank you, you Mr. Stewart. The case is submitted. Well, tomorrow at 10 o'clock. <laughs>